Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 134. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're joined by Rusty Long, an architect based in Cary, North Carolina. Rusty's private practice focuses on sustainability and community engagement with a style that bridges modernism and the history of the American South. Rusty's day job, however, is a state architect for the USDA Rural Development Office. As a federal employee, Rusty is one of approximately 800,000 individuals currently affected by the government shutdown. So on this 33rd day of the historical shutdown, as he and many others remain unpaid after two pay cycles, Rusty sits down with us to share his story. We talk about how and why he entered public service, the work he typically undertakes as a state architect, and the problems that this shutdown are causing for him, his colleagues, and the U.S. taxpayers in general. Hey, Rusty. Thanks for joining us today. Could you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do and uh, where you're from? Sure. My name is Rusty Long. I'm an architect out of Raleigh, North Carolina. currently work for the federal government and the Department of Agriculture. Prior to that, I did three years of federal service in another agency in energy management, which ties a lot into architecture, but really has no no design aspect to it. And then prior to that, I did a couple years post-recession on federal contract work, also in energy management and architecture. And prior to that, I was back here in Raleigh working for a small firm that closed down like so many others did during the Great Recession. So my jump into the federal service as an architect all began when we were all watching the stock market tank in the 2008-2009. So, Russell, you're, you've become somewhat of a uh, celebrity in the in the in our architectural world, and obviously, we we know a lot uh, of you from our meeting in the past and on Facebook. But could you tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, how do you the process? To me, was always uh, very daunting to work for the federal government. And everybody's talked about the the, the three letters, the KSNA, and the search. You know how the search function works and all that stuff. Can you talk a little bit about how daunting that process is, or how easy it was? Because you seem to it seems to work for you pretty well. So it is extraordinarily difficult. I first got into a position because I knew someone who was specifically hiring, uh, and they were friends with my current boss, who was shutting down the company. So he had a childhood friend who was like, "Look." I have some flexibility with this position, go ahead and apply. And he was able to get at least uh, through the front door because of a, a past connection. And then I was able to use that initially uh, to apply and get an interview with him. Lo and behold, we were competing for the same position. So this is like 2008. My boss with a dozen more years experience got the job. I did not. <laughs> and um, from there, no success for four years of applying for dozens and dozens of jobs after talking to people left and right at multiple positions. Uh, I got in because they needed another body to do architectural work. So I got in through a contract and on the private side, it's much more simple. They can say, hey, I want this guy in the office. So then they go through a, a big corporation, one of these Parsons, or they do staffing and engineering work for uh, the federal government. So they, you can get in through one of those. And for a long time, that was kind of the, the test period for a lot of these organizations, where they, they could bring someone in for six months, see if they work out. Then maybe they try and get them into a position down the road. That was no longer the case. Once the recession hit, everybody wanted to be a Fed. You know, it was really, <laughs> yep. really hard to, to actually get your foot in the door. So 
I ended up doing multiple contracts. And while there, I built up my resume. And it, it involved a lot of volunteering for extra duties, applying for multiple positions, and, and realizing how slanted some of those questions were. That You mentioned the KSA and the, there's these questionnaires. In, um, Can you explain what KSA is for those of us that don't know? So it's interesting. I don't actually know what the acronym is. I know. I know. I know this one. <laughs> Knowledge, skills, and abilities. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we always, I always refer to that as just the questionnaire. And it's this series of questions that have to do with a specific job that you're going in. Some of those are um, written out at the agency level for all the architect or all the engineer, or all the energy positions across the board. And then some of them are some flexibility at the local management level. And there are some that are like essay questions. That's where you have the opportunity to color your experience to the specific position. But a bunch of them are these multiple choice, you know, on a scale of zero to five, if you had no experience are you some experience? Are you the subject matter expert of all these specific items that the job entails? And I remember after having applied for no less than a dozen local positions that someone pulled me aside who was on the inside and said, you literally have to say five on all of them to make <laughs> them through the, through the computer black box for your resume to be seen by a person because wow. it's a whole automated thing. And I said, are you serious? He's like... I mean, in theory, you might be able to get through if you have some other mitigating circumstances. There's a, a big preference for uh, military veterans or, you know, yeah. some other element that pushes you up. But the reality is, he said, all the ones that I've seen, the person's answered five on all of them. I'm like, well, was it accurate? <laughs> That's a different question as to whether or not they were really the subject matter experts. So the first question is the questionnaire. It is not ideal because people game it. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the interview stage where they have a, a short list of candidates. And then they decide from the first list, which comes out of some foreign human relations office, not in your local piece of that agency. It's usually some if on the military, it was all consolidated out of one base for the Department of Agriculture. It was out of like Memphis. So you can't meet that person, and that person doesn't have any connection to the people you'll actually work for. So you, whether or not you yeah. even make it onto the person's desk is getting through that first piece. And so the, the final position that I got now, where I'm an architect, happened to be back where I was from, back in Raleigh, where my family is from, where I grew up. And the position in rural development, which is part of Department of Agriculture, relied on the skill sets that I built both in the federal government, but also in my prior experience working for a small firm. And if any of you guys have worked for a small firm, you know you do everything from, you know, first meeting with client, developing a contract, negotiating all the way through construction. Well, that's not the case for a lot of the applicants. So I could actually answer truthfully five <laughs> on multiple of those options. Okay. To get in. But even then, it's interesting because by that point, I was already working for the federal government. Well, one agency to another does not always transfer directly. So there was a really long process of negotiating to try and get them to put my resume before a person. And I was literally looking up every number I could find at the local office for where I wanted to work. Like I was just calling random numbers on their switchboard, basically, trying to find someone. Who is this person that I would work for? Can you give him my number? 
can I send a physical copy of my resume? Because I'm trying to get in and I'm a fed. So in theory, you could just lateral selection me into it yeah. without going through all this process. But the, the steps that it took to get to there from a January job solicitation, I started in September. So it took nine months of working the day job while trying to move the pieces, you know, in the human it, resources world to get into where I wanted to be. I would imagine that's generally understood how it works in the federal government. So there's no animosity about you trying to do a lateral move. It's just what are where the opportunities are. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because they had at least one candidate who was already internal to the organization. They wanted to take the job, but they wanted the job under the ability to, can I do this job remotely? And my job is boots on the ground in the 95 plus rural counties in North Carolina doing field inspections and initial site meetings and construction kickoff meetings. And like, you cannot do it remotely. So this person who went through the whole negotiation interview process said at the last minute, hey, I want to do this from where I am. Can I do that? And so they, after three or four months of selection, had to totally stop and start over. And that was kind of eventually led to me successfully getting an interview. But it, it is it is a known thing that um, oftentimes if you are not a vet or you don't know someone or you have not already somehow gotten into a one position that you could build up to what you'd like to be, it is really hard to get past the human resources wall. And I, I don't think it's intentional, but in architecture specifically, there is a lack of understanding on the human resources side of what we do. So those KSAs, those knowledge bits and pieces and keywords that are sticking in the human resources system, they don't mean the same to the person in HR as they do to us as architects. Mm -hmm. So the idea that like, I've got a great portfolio or I have all this experience, they might put you in there with a group of selection that has a, a military vet that's an engineer but not licensed and a landscape architect with a degree and no license and you being, you know, 10 years of experience running a firm, licensed professional, all this stuff, that might be their three options for the HR people to send over because they, the, that side of it is so foreign to the architecture world. And I assume that's true in other specialized fields as well. Can you talk about what uh, you do for the Department of Agriculture? Yeah. So inside the Department of Agriculture, there is a, a subgroup called Rural Development that's part of the Rural Housing Service. They have a whole, they have both guaranteed loans and direct loans. And so they act like a bank to nonprofits, local county government, school systems, all over qualifying rural districts in the nation. And so that agency or sub-agency, it's a bank. And we are, as architects within it, the technical professional who is looking at the architectural agreements, the plans and specifications, making sure that stuff is accessible to federal guidelines, not just local guidelines, and all of those bits and pieces. That's where I fit. But that means that we have the opportunity to reach these. It's not just nonprofits, but it is, it is groups that would not otherwise qualify for commercial credit. So we're, we're kind of the... Um, the term we use is the, the creditor of last resort for impoverished communities. And so we offer a lower term and a longer rate for the community that can't afford the police station that they've needed or the town hall, or uh, there's a lot of work with substance abuse. There's a lot of fire stations, schools. We're funding all those for a longer term and a lower rate than a lot of the borrowers would qualify in the commercial market. 
that's interesting. I think we we hit on this before, guys. I think when um, when Emily was on here, when she worked for HUD, she talked about these various um, other governmental organizations that provide loans. So it's interesting that the Department of Agriculture provides loans for buildings that don't necessarily have to do with agriculture. That's right. And there's also farm loans. I don't get involved in that. In the state of North Carolina, at least we don't do any um, migrant worker housing just because no one's applied for it. But that's a big program in California that their local rural development group does a lot of. So there's there's all these different programs, and some of them on the utility side have more grant in place because they've got uh, water infrastructure and whatnot, and they have to hit a certain utility rate for it to work for the income of the community. But there's it's all about the service area and the location of it to make sure that it's qualifying. So you're not going just outside of a big city to build a, you know, a charter school. And it's really going to serve the needs of the city and not the rural County that you're just over the line of some aspects of the underwriting of it that are specific to rural areas. Whereas HUD specifically is looking more at urban areas. So the inside the loan program, they have to look at that. They have to make sure that this program is not, this project isn't going to impact um, ideal farmland, prime farmland, that kind of thing. So there's there's a handful of additional requirements to qualify for it, but it is it is it is one of a couple different federal agencies that are out there uh, helping local communities. And you might, if you if you drive through the country, you might see an occasional USDA sign next to a job site. Uh, sometimes those are utilities. Sometimes those are, are our projects. But it is it is literally just. Someone went in, applied just like a regular loan, and got funding for their project. And they're usually for, like I said, it's a it's a longer term at a lower rate to allow them to uh, qualify for something that otherwise they wouldn't be able to do. Rusty, I think you know you're you're the the first architect that I've that I've spoken with that works for the federal government. So I'm really curious how working for for the the federal government compares with working as an architect in the private sector beyond just the obvious you know differences in projects and you know clients what are some of the the bigger differences so we're focusing more like a permitting entity than a architect doing actual design work so i don't on a day-to-day basis during my 9 to 5 do any design work with you know a couple unusual exceptions where you you help solve a small problem on something where they, for whatever reason, didn't have an architect or an engineer involved. The vast majority of it is helping them through the process and working with my counterparts in the private sector to make sure that they are aware of what it is that we're looking for and to help them through this process from a technical standpoint. So it's, it's much more of a project management side of our profession than the, you know, the design guru side. But you get to touch bits and pieces of projects and communities uh, that for me, I could not do on the private sector and remain profitable. So having worked in small firms and done some cool one-off projects here and there, there was this realization that, hey, you can do that stuff kind of pro bono, but you can't have that community service fulfillment and that totally be your job on a day-to-day basis. At least we couldn't in the market we were in. So we might get to do one or two cool things like that a year, but the vast majority of our our work on the private side was big commercial projects or custom houses. So this position for me was this opportunity to get in there and make a difference. Yeah, I'm not designing the projects, but these projects wouldn't happen without us there. And you, so you get to help from kind of minute one, help them through the procurement process, make sure that when they pick an architect, they haven't just pulled a name out of a 
a phone book, but that the person understands what it is that they're doing for them. And, you know, the, it's, it's much more of a, a consulting position than a, a design architect position. I'm guessing that might be a little bit of uh, you might be missing out a little bit because I, you know, just based on my my stalking of your social profiles, uh, specifically your Facebook profile, I can tell that you are quite passionate about design and you've got you know great taste in in architectural design because you share a lot of projects. So you strike me as someone that would thrive with working as a designer. Is that something that you're missing from this job? Well, it is something I would be missing if I wasn't still doing it. So Mm -hmm. part of, for me, the moment that I took the first non-architecture job, federal government, I said, I am not going to put my stamp up and stop designing. I was already at that point working for myself. And I said, I may not take on as much work as I'm going to do working full time, but I'm still going to keep an active license wherever I am and continue to practice. So nights, weekends, moonlighting as a one-man show architect is something that I have been doing since the recession. And I've actually built it up to the point now where I have partnered with other folks and we have done some bigger projects, a big hotel, mid-century hotel renovation that's, you know, in permitting now and uh, a lot of commercial fit-up work and little stuff that didn't involve my agency, which is a key piece of it is you can't do any work that would represent a uh, conflict of interest. So I don't shop my services out to rural communities. But for me, it's great because I have a day job that gives the insurance that I need to care for my kids, the stability that having been through the Great Recession is not always there when you're a small firm. But I also have more flexibility than I did then to maybe say no to that less than ideal project where you go, gosh, this is not a good fit. This is not financially stable or whatever, but we need the money as a firm. So I'm taking it anyway. I'm now in the position where, hey, the the baseline bills are paid. So I can be a little more picky and choosy with the clients that I take on. And for me, that's enough. I know some people couldn't couldn't do the, the day-to-day non-design thing for eight hours, but it's cool because the interaction piece for me, I love the social aspect of it. And speaking of folks in communities that really need this, you know, this fire station or the school and being there to help usher them through that process. And then I go home and I turn on my, my light and sit down at my desk and I start designing on whatever it is that, you know, I'm working on that day. So I guess this is a good time to uh, talk about the elephant in the room, which is the uh, big <laughs> government uh, shutdown. So I guess I guess you're in a in a better position than many of the other government employees who have been completely without work since you do have a design practice on the side. Can you talk a little bit about uh, I mean, has has this part of your work had to ramp up to to make up for lost wages. And maybe you can talk about how the, the shutdown has affected you and some of your colleagues. Yeah. So I have been in touch with colleagues that are on the architecture side as well as the loan side. The, the loan side people are in a much harder spot because you cannot walk into a job at a similar institution on Christmas Eve when you hear two days before that the government is shut down. So their ability to walk out and get some work quickly results in them going after something like an Uber or a part-time retail job or something. And for me, I already have a web presence, I already have contacts, and I can just start calling people, do you have anything coming up? Start reaching out to local architects and, hey, I'm available. So for me, that gives me the the peace of mind, at least, that eventually, you know, after invoicing and accounts receivable and, you know, 30 days of however long it takes to get paid, there will be some, I won't go totally without income during this time. But the flip side is that if, if you've worked in a small firm, you know, you cannot turn in 
15 days a client lead into a check with very few exceptions it's just not that not that fast so the the other architects that i know in the agency one is helping family renovate a house physically doing the labor the other actually also owns a farm he lives and runs a hay farm and uh, so that has been his cushion is that he had a relatively good year and instead of that money going into next year's you know upping the equipment or improving stuff that's kind of what he's living off of now. So the shutdown has been not nearly as bad for us as a lot of folks, but only because I had a little bit of stuff already in the works and I could get it done a little faster. The reality is this week for all of us will be the second week without a paycheck, which if you read the statistics, the vast majority of Americans cannot go a full month with no income. Some can't even absorb a you know, two or $300 emergency coming up without being late or missing a payment on something. So this is five weeks now I haven't gone to the office, which mm-hmm. for me is the longest I have not gone to a day job since I got my work permit at age 15. <laughs> wow. So that's a, it's a weird thing. The kids love that I'm home all the time. So I'm, I'm getting a <laughs> lot of dad time in, um, but it is, it is, it, it starts to wear down on you and the psychological, like I got to get out. I got to go do something. This is, this is negative. And for folks that don't have somewhere else to put that energy, you know, they don't have a, a license they can turn around and turn into some quick income. It's a, I'm sure it's much, much worse. I mean, everybody's seen little, you know, talking points and clips on TV with short little interviews with furloughed uh, government employees. But in general, what is the kind of feeling about this shutdown among you and your colleagues? Is it something that is just kind of accepted as as something that has to happen? Is there, have people expressed frustration or perhaps like, you know, a change in political leaning as a result of this, of this shutdown? I think so. I mean, the the folks that I've talked to, I already kind of knew where they sat on things politically, looking at the changes that were already happening in our organization under this administration. And a little bit of frustration that you already saw, this is kind of the the icing on the cake, the realization that, you know, you don't get any notice, you get a, an email at midnight on Friday before Christmas, hey, you're not coming in next week, and uh, we don't know when you're going to come back in. There were a lot of people in the agency just because of when we grew as an agency and recruiting kind of, there's been a lot of hiring freezes in the last couple decades. There were a lot of people who are already eligible to retire that were on the fence about whether they wanted to leave this year or next, or maybe a couple years down the road. And I have every expectation that we're going to have a huge drain of talent who people are going to come back in and say, that's it, I'm done. They're going to, there's no one to retire to now. So they can't quit now until it resumes. But I would imagine that there's going to be a whole bunch of folks are going to go, forget it. It's not worth the trouble. It's not, you know, I'm, I, I just had a taste of retirement for the last four weeks and it was great. And they're going to walk out. So I think that that piece of it is going to hit multiple organizations, but ours pretty, pretty heavily. When we did a survey of our kind of national architects group, a lot of them, more than half were eligible for retirement. That doesn't mean that they're going to, but they have met a requirement where they're at least at the minimum age and they can walk out. So I don't know that that means in 2019 they are, but it's extraordinarily frustrating because we have clients that we've been working with all year and you know, there's change orders and pay applications that have to be approved. They're sitting on our desks. So you have contractors that aren't being paid, architects that aren't being paid, projects being delayed, potentially in every state in the nation. Has there been much communication among you and your and your coworkers since the shutdown or has it just been kind of, you know, silent? Uh, it's been 
totally ad hoc. So in theory, everyone left everything at the office and you aren't even allowed to check your email. So the only people that you are really going to hear from are people that you've personally got their numbers and connected to outside of the the, the work stuff. Like in, in everybody's supposed to set up an out of office on their work cell phone and leave it and not even check it until we start back up. Officially, that's the like requirement. So there's been no communication from our command chain because they're all furloughed too, all the way up to DC. And you know, this is in the midst of internal reorganizations and new regulations that were put out in the last 90, 120 days that impact all kinds of things on a a day-to-day basis. And the amount of communication that we're receiving is nothing until it opens back up. But the horizontal stuff, I know there's a lot of folks who have done kind of like what I've done is reached out to the few people that I knew personally and said, hey, are you guys all right? Do you need anything? And there's this kind of feeling that amongst ourselves, we're kind of taking care of each other. But agency as a whole just disappears on a Friday night until a compromise is reached. So, Rusty, for the Ayn Randian crowd that listens to our our podcast and uh, that one person or uh, knows who they are, (laughs) you know, they they probably see this as like, wow, we can finally get rid of government. Can you talk just briefly about the impact, not just on yourself, but on the rural communities that you serve? What, how... I mean, that's, I think, a part of this that gets left out of the equation is that they're only talking about 800,000 employees, but there is a community that you serve that is at risk that is actually within, probably for the most part, the people that supported the administration that's currently in in, in, in place. Yeah. Well, it's, it, is, it is a shame because I've heard that stuff from kind of that political slant from getting this job on day one. Um, I've heard people, why does the Department of Agriculture need architects? Why are they doing loans? The private sector could do that. Well, I can tell you they don't because they're not interested. There's no payback from a business standpoint in helping a small community that's got a declining population getting their police station out of a building that's leaking with asbestos and there's no security between the front door and the chief's desk. Little pieces like that, there's dozens of those stories in every state in the nation. They won't be helped without this agency. There is not a bank that is out there going, gosh, we would love to extend to you a 40-year loan at uh, one point above prime in order to allow you to you know, rehab this facility or that facility. That There is no, from a business standpoint, it doesn't make sense. From a human standpoint, it absolutely makes sense. And that's why the agency began. That's why this thing exists and is utilized, because there are these underserved communities that if you if you lived in Ayn Rand's universe, you just leave them and let the community collapse and let the utility system fall apart. And, you know, there would be no new police station for them in their lifetime. I mean, so there's there's multiple tons and tons of stories like that that aren't getting told. And I don't know if it's because the the applicants aren't able to get the attention of the news or because it's not been long enough that it's dire. The reality is if if you eliminate a department like this, you will see billions of dollars each year not invested in rural communities that we invest and are paid back. And the funny thing about the whole discussion of it being wasteful or whatever. My program, the specific program that I work in, is net zero cost to the taxpayer because of the the way they set up the loans. It pays for our salaries and, and the cost of the running of the program. So it's not like 
a drain on the taxpayers, it's self-sufficient. So (laughs) you you can't just take all these loans and go, well, we'll sell them to Wells Fargo or, or we'll sell them to you name the banking institution, close down the agency and not just issue, just not issue anymore next year. Well, the reality is buildings age, communities grow, schools age. That that police station that bought police cars five years ago, they're going to need new ones in a few years. And they can't buy cash, everything that they would like, that they need to protect the people of that small town. They cannot buy that new piece of fire equipment that they need to to keep these communities going. So it's it's frustrating to hear that. Um, I have been in that position of a face-to-face conversation with someone going, I don't understand why anyone would want to even do your job because that's not needed. You you, you know the, the sector, the private sector will, will deal with it. And you go, I'd like to introduce you to people. I'd like to take you out and introduce you to the people in the communities that I deal with, the people in the the apartments that are receiving rental assistance that have now been 30 days without rental assistance, those developers that own those complexes, they cannot float a lack of rent from these impoverished communities in where their whole portfolio exists. So it's not just the, you know, the individuals directly impacted, but there's a whole secondary impact on the private sector businesses that we support that, you know, their people are getting eviction notices in the next 30 days if they can't pay rent and they can't pay rent if we're not there to provide the assistance. So it's, it is definitely a much bigger animal than you can see in a 30 day shutdown. And if you cut programs like that, you'll, you'll see it then. Do you feel like your department that you work in is going to have any big setbacks or, or suffer from this shutdown in, in a significant way? I would say in a, a dramatic way, because mm-hmm. the way this year, this fiscal year, starting in October 1, you know, the federal fiscal year, every budget has been through a continuing resolution. None of that, there has not been a full year's budget. So we know as, as states about how much we were allocated last year and about how much would be allocated for the year total with no ability to award anything because we don't have a specific amount for our state for this year. So what we have lost is in the 12 month year, we have not just lost these 30 days of not being open. There has not been a full year's budget since the end of the last fiscal year. So we still don't know how much money we have left to spend between whenever we reopen and the end of September. So there are applications that are either pending. There's environmental reports that need to be done and reviewed. There's fish and wildlife coordination, local Indian tribes that have to be consulted. I mean, there's there's a whole process just to get outstanding applications for beginning projects for next year that aren't being serviced now. And you're talking about not just the 10% of the year that we've been shut down so far, but you know, roughly a third of the year that we haven't had a real budget. So when when the people in Washington that are elected to do the job don't give us a real budget, and then DC is not sure how much they're going to allocate, and they say, we're not going to allocate anything to you you're going to just come on a case-by-case basis and apply for one project at a time, and we'll give you a yay or nay on one. There's no telling from a state level, can we fund that $40, $50 million hospital that might come to us in six months? Or are we going to be able to say, yes, that fits in our annual budget? We have no clue if that's going to be available at all because there's no no budget for the year. So, so the impact of inaction, not just 
for the shutdown, but from the month-to-month basis of kicking the can down instead of a, a comprehensive budget impacts us dramatically. And I would expect what we'll see in 2020 is a significant downturn in the amount of investment just because of time not spent. We, we can only do so much you know, working full-time for the rest of the year trying to pull together applications and push them through and get people ready to, you know, begin design and construction next year. It seems like the majority of the population does not really truly understand the value or necessity of government workers such as yourself. Does that seem accurate from your perspective? And has this shutdown, do you think, in, in improved the awareness of government contributions to you know society, or do you think it's made any difference? I think it's made a difference in certain sectors. I think because it's a, a partial, you only have certain uh, departments shut down that mitigate some of the damage. And for better or for worse, there has been a push within this administration to minimize the visibility of damage. So there's been multiple groups. You've probably read that FSA is bringing back so many employees to continue processing farm hardship payments from the tariffs, or they're making sure that there's additional people to do meat inspection, or, you know, there's, there's bits and pieces that they have reallocated funds that were to go to something else later in the year, but was already in the checkbook, so to speak, to make it not be felt as bad. Mm. Uh, and that's not to mention the fact that we have these positions um, that are like, like mission critical, mission essential people who have to work whether they're paid or not. So the reality is for the elected officials, they have set it up in a way that you you mitigate it. You've, you've, you've built in a cushion that even if we shut down, at least these people will still have to work. And so the public won't realize just how much TSA or Homeland Security or agriculture are doing because we've decided these people are too important for them to stop working. Not important enough to pay (laughs) during that time, but too important for the work to be stopped for any period of time. So to me, the, the way that it's set up to kind of, you know, in theory, that's, that's protecting life and safety. You know, the, the idea is, Hey, if we have those people there, we're less likely to have an accident or attack or, or whatever it is that their specific mission essential job is. But the reality is it deadens the American public to the real impact of, you know, our public institutions not running because of political failures, not because there's some ingrained issue with the institution or the work they're doing, just because politicians can't sit down and meet like adults. I think well, people will start paying attention when a plane goes down. Exactly. And, and, and that's, it's a frightening prospect to think yeah, is that, what it that's will what take it takes, right? is, is, is death. Or, yeah. yeah, something, something mm-hmm. really horrible happening being the, the, the moment where we go, gosh, maybe this is more important than our political differences. The, the idea that it could take that is terrifying. <laughs> and I hope that we can, you know, the politicians of both sides can find an answer before that. But every time that you hear either folks speak, there's no movement and there's no idea of when the shutdown will end. It's not like we're getting, you know, we're begun negotiations and we're going to have a proposed bill that we agree on in set number of days. I mean, you, you guys have been in contract negotiations as architects before. If you walk in and you say, this is what I'm getting or nothing, you, you'll leave without the job. Yeah. And the reality is that that has been the position, you know, basically since 
the beginning of January. So I don't see any movement on our side. We don't we don't see any hints of it. And I don't I don't know how that um how that's gonna how that's gonna end without there being either someone just totally giving up their piece of the argument or like you said, you know, a tragedy happening. Personally, I mean not speaking well, I mean, as much as you can, the argument that it exists right now, and I, I, I totally, uh, I think it's totally plausible given who, what's uh, the people that are in the, the, the pro- in this particular process. I don't trust is that if you if you capitulate to his demand to the demands of the administration, that knowing that the the, the prize is thirty billion dollars to to build whatever uh, they want to build down there on, on the border. That the five billion is obviously just—it's not going to do anything. Um, that if you give in to this particular demand, you'll be right back here the next time because this is not have this. This shutdown is a completely a manufactured thing. Whereas the Republicans have uh, liked to point out that they would shut down government for budget—you know, like for about balancing the budget or reining in the debt. This one is really about a particular campaign piece. It has nothing to do with anything but that particular promise do you i mean do you see i mean do people that you talk with see it the same way that this is kind of like a i think it's a great way of looking at it a hostage taking and that you don't negotiate with hostages or do, do you don't you don't know, negotiate with a hostage taker yeah it does and, I, and, I, and i've heard this story again and again and it's it's interesting to me that you will hear folks who you know support the Democratic Party say, hey, don't give in on this. This is what you guys just ran on. Do not give him a penny for the wall. And then you'll hear on the other side, don't give in at all. You need the full funding for the wall. When if you have been watching, you know that they need 10 times this to build that wall. And as an architect, we can say it's not even feasible. There's areas where you physically couldn't build this with any amount of money because of the you can't get trucks down to the location to excavate and blow rocks. So the idea that the whole border is going to be closed from an engineering standpoint, that is not something that $5 billion can do. Uh, and they're really only asking for like 10% of what it would take. And it's going to hit the probably the lowest hanging fruit areas in the highest risk in theory, right? Well, the reality is that the all those Democrats that just got elected in the House, they know, and they campaign specifically against this. So they know this will be my only term in Congress if I give in. And this will be the exact same conversation we have in September about the next year's budget. So I don't see, from a political standpoint, why either party would give in. They have they have drawn their line. This is a campaign promise I'm going to keep, and this is a campaign promise I'm going to keep. And I don't think that the administration acknowledges, at least out loud, that all these folks just got in specifically to represent people who elected them to stop this from happening. So it is hard to see a way out from this that is not the, you know, the the declaration of emergency all the politicians can pull back and say, well, he's done that so we can now go back to our our regular negotiation among those of us who are not in the White House. It's hard to see a solution that is not that when there is no room for budging on either side and both sides would say there's no reason to budge because we're in the right. And you go well, that doesn't feel great to be over here who is in no way related to Department of Homeland Security or the thing you guys are arguing about. You can't just reopen the government and then have that argument because then you've given in. It's pretty frustrating, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. 
And I, and I, I can understand if you just got into office or you just regained speakership, how the first thing you're going to do is not going to be give in. But it's frustrating to watch the media coverage of it and there be no acknowledgement that that Friday when we were told we were shut down, the Senate passed unanimously a continuing resolution without wall funding. And then the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, went to the White House to check and see if it was okay to pass the same bill. And he came out and said, the president's not going to sign it. And then the shutdown happened. None of that is part of the dialogue today. It's now about who can end the shutdown, right? But if we were all watching it, we saw literally the House, I mean, the Senate unanimously agreed, we're not going to shut down the government. And then it all fell apart amongst one party before even getting to a vote in the House. So I don't see how how you get out of this impasse without some third party emergency or or someone blinking. It's frustrating. Hey, Rusty, before I get to the last question, I, I wanted to get a little off topic with you. Just I've been fascinated by you and your beautiful family and um, your son, Matthew. Is that right? That is my man. Yes, Matthew. Can you talk a little bit about Matthew and tell and, and just talk a little bit about maybe how um, how his his life has impacted you as an architect? Absolutely. So just over five years ago, our son was born. Everything was A-OK. We had no issues during the pregnancy. We were at 48 hours prepping to take him home. And um, a nurse said, hey, his heart rate and his breathing rate is kind of high. We're going to check a couple things. They pull him back in for another test. I am packing up our other two kids at the time, my, my daughters, to go pick up mom. And we get the call. He's not coming home. And we discover that he has a tiny error in his genetic code that is inherited that changes the way the liver works so he can't process protein. And it floods the body, the bloodstream with ammonia, which poisons the brain. And within 12 hours of hearing this, he is in a coma in the ICU at the specialty hospital, you know, 15 minutes away. So for us, there was this realization, we don't know anything about this. My wife, you know, she's got a degree in microbiology, so she has some knowledge, but it is all foreign to me. And we get through 30 days of ICU staying and genetic testing to discover what exactly it is that he has and how to treat it. And at the end of that, there's been catastrophic brain damage. And they say, look, we're going to turn off the breathing machines and you might be saying goodbye. They do it often. They, they take it off and he keeps breathing on his own and he comes home and he has, you know, a variety of, you know, cerebral palsy. He's quadriplegic, all these impacts from this totally unknown. It's something you can't test for disease wise. So we go through all that, a liver transplant at 14 months old. And now we're, you know, five years down the road and he is in public school and you're dealing with day to day, dealing with what it is like to push a wheelchair through all those thresholds that may or may not have been designed to meet accessibility. And you are realizing the, you know, the bathroom requirements in ADA are not really adequate for laying down a five-year-old who needs to be changed. And so from an architectural standpoint, him caring for him has really opened my eyes how inadequate our little building codes and bits and pieces of accessibility are in caring for not just 
kids with special needs, but adults with special needs and the aging population. So for me, there was this light bulb. This is why I do what I do. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, I want to do cool modernist artwork. You know, I, I would love to <laughs> have a patron client come in and want to do the, you know, that magnificent ocean front project. Yeah, that'd be great. But the reality is, this is the nuts and bolts of what we can make a difference in advocacy and in our day-to-day struggles with clients who are, you know, working from a budget and don't understand why, you know, 10 more square feet is needed in that restroom renovation for the restaurant. So his impact on our lives, besides the, you know, day-to-day, you know, total realignment of how you spend your time really took me as an architect back to the core of what is it that I do and is, am I doing that? And, you know, a year after he went through transplant was a realization, this job that I'm doing is not, not meeting that. And so that process led me down in a way to where we are now. That's great. Hey, um, so we come to Paul, I think we're, you'd say we're at the end. Yeah. This has been such an enlightening conversation for, for me personally. And I'm sure that, uh, our listeners will really get a lot of value out of getting more insight into what it's like to work as an architect in the government or just working for the government at all, especially during this this time. Hopefully, it will increase the awareness of the necessity of these jobs and not just kind of get brushed under the rug while everybody that works for the government tries to struggle to fix things once once the government reopens, hopefully, which will be sooner than later. So thank you so much. I know that Ken has two questions that he likes to uh, likes to ask our guests, so I will hand it over to him. So, Rusty, what are you listening to and what are you reading? So I will start with listening. Um a lot of way too much news coverage, uh, first off, for obvious personal reasons. But I, I've been a big podcast guy, and part of that is because so much of my job is on the road. So we just finished Bagman, which is Rachel Maddow uh-huh. digging into the story of Spiro Agnew and his ejection from the office of vice president right before Nixon was impeached. And prior to that, I was actually on a kick of three different podcasts back-to-back following the story of cults and people who survived cults, in part because of the current political climate and there being this kind of cult of personality going on in our own culture, this this realization that what does it take? So there was a, a really good one on Heaven's Gate, which led me to a podcast called Dear Franklin Jones about a, a different cult that I had never heard of. And lastly, actually, Caliphate, which is a whole investigative journalism piece about someone who was in ISIS. Really interesting to see the parallels between, you know, 1970s crazy UFO cult and, you know, a Canadian kid who goes off to join ISIS. Like you you see and you realize these threads are there through all these stories. So that's what I've been listening to with a a lot of dead Kennedys and black flag and old school punk um, (laughs) mixed in there, you know, um, when the kids aren't in the car, that's, that's a different story. (laughs) They don't get too much dead Kennedys on the carpool lane. Um, you got to teach them young. I I try, but within reason, there's there's, there's a couple Kennedy songs we can do, you know, there's at least a couple that I don't want them to, uh, be singing in class. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. And and so books, all of my books are not architectural at all. And that probably says something about a need to escape the current situation. But 
I have a tendency to start and stop multiple books at once. So I'm never reading just one thing. So the three books that I have on my nightstand that I'm, you know, digging through, one is called JB uh, by Archibald MacLeish. It's actually a 1958 play based on the book of Job. Um, and I found that because uh, Stephen Colbert mentioned it in an interview with um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So it, it is a really, really interesting play on taking the story of Job from the Bible and inserting it into 1950s America and all the stuff that was going on politically and as a society. So that, and then a book called Break Time by Bernard Lefkowitz. He used to be the editor for the New York Post. This is a nonfiction book written in 78, uh, in which he interviews a series of people who have all given up full-time work. So it's, it's about dropping out of this nine-to-five society and how these people managed to make it in our capitalist economy without work, at least work in the way that, you know, we, we think of it. So it, it came to me via some a hashtag post-work, I think, um, from some random, you know, person who found you on Instagram or Twitter, one of those. And, and I found out about this book that is just a series of interviews of people who gave up the full-time job as a stockbroker. One of them was an architect, gave it up and worked on, I think, houseboats and traded bartered services and all. So all these people kind of dropping out of the nine to five capitalist economy and living another way. And the last book that is on my list is actually Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. <laughs> you may or may not have heard. It is it is not as extreme as it sounds. I, I know swear. it's just funny to hear that name. <laughs> but but yeah, well, I, I got I was like, I've I've heard all this stuff about it. Well, I'm gonna read it. And how does it apply to what I do as an architect? Um, because in a lot of ways we are like community organizers. We are um advocates for not just our clients, but you know, society as a whole. So those are my uh that's what's on my stack right now. Very timely stuff. I actually just recently learned about the word, uh, the Japanese term uh, tsundoku, which is a a pile of unread books on your nightstand, and or or partially read. And so it sounds like uh, you and I are both kind of fit into that same category. If you have Netflix and you like, you know, if you want to dig a little deeper into uh, cult stuff, I, I would recommend The Source Family, which is a great documentary about this LA-based uh, cult that that then uh, moved off to. Uh, Hawaii. I mean, obviously, there's Wild Wild Country, too, which I think most people have seen. But the Source family is a good one. Excellent. Well, I, I definitely am. I don't know if I can convince the wife that that's something that we need to add to our evening <laughs> evening watch list. It's better than news. Because yeah. we're watching the news, and I'm like, wouldn't you like something lighter? Like, w- let's watch The Handmaid's Tale. You know, let's yeah. lighten it up a little and, but, and try to get something a little less serious. Isn't The Handmaid's Tale news? <laughs> I'm not there's, sure there's yet. There's a fine line. There's a fine line. I need line a few months. Two, I, it may be. We're not... We're we're, we're, you know, we're in like the prologue, I think, still. <laughs> well, Rusty, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your story. It's fascinating. And I really hope that this shutdown ends soon for, for both you and the rest of the country. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a, a pleasure being on. Love listening to the podcast and any opportunity to, to speak about Matthew, you know, I'll Oh yeah. I'll ramble all day long. <laughs> well, we'd love to have you back. Maybe after the after the shutdown ends, we can uh, Yeah, a, maybe maybe once it's over I can tell you about all the projects that we uh we got to do for the rest of the year. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds great. Well, that was our show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account Arc Sessions or with the hashtag Arc Sessions. 
You can also send us an email to connect at rconnect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time.